Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day, and we thank you for uh, the gift of your word, and we thank you especially for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray now, Father, that that would be faithfully proclaimed according to your word. Lord, let all truth rise and all untruth fall to the ground. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to tell you a story about our last newcomers meeting. Uh, we have a newcomers dinner at uh, once a month, and Janie and I love to host that. It gives us an opportunity to kind of share about Mission St. James and share a little bit about Anglicanism and answer any questions. Um, well, we had one visitor, one newcomer at our newcomers dinner, and we, uh, they, they, he knew the Brogdons, so we invited the Brogdons over. Um, and at that dinner, our friend Lucas Brogdon over there disclosed to our only newcomer that one of my former careers was an animator, and uh, I worked on the Jimmy Neutron feature film many, many, many years ago. Now, this bit of information gives me a sort of street cred out there, which wanes with each passing generation, I would add. But I love talking about that job because it was awesome. Just ask me sometime. I'll probably talk your ear off about it. But I need to tell you a story about how a hard lesson I learned that moved me from that dream job into the real world. See, I worked in a small department uh, that was responsible for what we called secondary animation. So I wasn't a glorious animator. I got to animate people walking down the street back, uh, in the background. And um, my, my claim to fame was a, a t- like a one-second, split-second scene of a kid throwing up over the side of a carnival ride. So this was, this was as glorious as it got. But the department that I worked in consisted of me and one other animator. Um, we were supervised from, uh, by another animator who worked all the way on the other side of the studio. She was part of the real animation team, and we were on the outskirts. Uh, her job was a lot more glorious, but it was evident to me from the beginning and throughout the entire project that she liked my counterpart a lot more than she liked me. He always got the better assignments, and she gave him way more attention than she ever gave to me. Now, I kind of felt like we had equal talent, but she didn't see it that way. So when our contracts were coming to a close and the producers had told her, you you need to extend one of their contracts, Uh, we don't care which one, it sort of made sense that I was sent packing and he was not. I felt that I had a much work, better work ethic. He spent way too much time on the internet to be half as productive as I was. So I felt injustice of the decision. And it sort of deflated my cartoon-making balloon, you might say. And I was convinced that, he had, that she had a crush on him, and that's why I was sent packing and he wasn't. But this is the real world. And you know what? It's not fair. It's not fair. Now, today, my ego can handle the fact that I may not have been as good of an animator as my counterpart, but the sentiment remains, doesn't it? 
The idea of fairness is a human expectation, and it's ingrained in us from the time that we are very small children. In Romans chapter 9, Paul continues his exposition of the gospel, which we have been in, and he turns to the question of why some of his fellow Israelites do not believe. And it seems to some, it seems some, of, some have been chosen by God and others have not. So does this mean that God is unfair or unjust? Well, today I face the impossible task of summing up the entire chapter of Romans in 20 minutes or so. So our lectionary, as you know, is that list in the back of our Book of Common Prayer that gives us all the readings for the year. Our lectionary only gives me a mere five verses out of Romans chapter 9 before it skips all the way to the middle of chapter 11 for next week. Perhaps this is because chapters 9, 10, and 11 are the most difficult texts in the New Testament, and they want to spare us preachers from the agony of preaching them. But whatever the case, my intention is to preach each of these chapters over the next three weeks. So tonight, I will preach through chapter 9, next week, chapter 10, and so forth. That'll keep us on track as we go through the book of Romans. There's no way that that much preaching could ever do justice to these chapters. So I'm going to be preaching through this thematically, looking at the themes of each chapter. So I encourage you this week to actually go back and read all of chapter 9 so you can feel the weight of what Paul is struggling with or what he's feeling, at least, as he writes these verses. He is agonizing over the unbelief of his fellow Israelites. And however much it pains him, however much it seems that God is unjust or unfair, he sticks to his guns. He lets his understanding of God inform his experience in the world rather than the other way around. He lets his understanding of God inform his experience in the world rather than the other way around. So let's go ahead and look in your bulletins for the five verses that we have. We'll start in verse one, where Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from, the, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, I mentioned last week that chapter 8 concludes this long argument that begins at least as far back as chapter 6. And today's text seems like a major subject change, but it really isn't. The implication of the gospel, that is, justification and reconciliation with God through faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, the implication of it is that Paul's fellow Israelites who do not accept Jesus as the Messiah seem to be left out of the promises of God. It's really difficult to overstate how important this question is. Remember that the recipients of this letter are Jewish and Gentile. They're all in that same church there in Rome. So how Jewish should Christianity be? This is really the question that really plagues the early church. Paul is constantly writing about it, right? 
The apostles address it in Acts chapter 15. And the Roman church certainly is dealing with this as Paul writes it. But how do you make sense of the fact that some of the Jewish people are Christians and others are not? Aren't all the Jewish people God's people? Well, we have to listen to Paul's heart here. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish is in his heart concerning the Jewish unbelievers. And this sorrow and anguish would not be in his heart if some of them weren't in danger, right? But the rest of the passage doesn't really help us, at least the rest of the passage that the lectionary gives us. It doesn't really help us much. Look at verses 4 and 5. They, the Israelites, they are Israelites. And they belonged, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, I say that these verses don't help us much because they merely state the advantages that the Israelites have at their disposal. They say nothing about why Paul is in such great sorrow. For that, you have to read the rest of Romans chapter 9, which is why your bulletin says 1 through 29 instead of 1 through 5, because I almost printed all of, all of that chapter. Um, it would have been helpful, but um, I encourage you to go and read it. For now, Paul is reiterating what he said all the way back in chapter 3, verse 1. There he asked, what advantage... Have the Jew, has the Jew. And he says, he answers this, much in every way. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's how we put it back in chapter three. And here he says much the same thing, but he elaborates on it a little bit. The oracles that he was talking about in chapter three are the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the law and worship and the promises. And not only that, but from the Israelites came the Messiah through the seed of the patriarchs. Paul's point here is that the Jewish people have received everything they need to recognize the one seed of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. Except many of them haven't. And here's where things seem to feel and start to get unfair or seem to get unfair. In the verses that follow our passage, St. Paul makes the point that not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. That is, the oracles of God, the adoption and covenants and law and so forth, they've been given to those who descend from Israel. Now, Israel here is understood to be Jacob. If you remember, God changed Jacob's name in the Old Testament back in Genesis from Jacob to Israel. So the oracles are given to a certain branch of Abraham's line, those who descend from Jacob or Israel. But there's an issue. Abraham had other children, as did Jacob. Remember Ishmael? He was Adam's, or Abraham's son through Hagar. The promise of God did not come through Ishmael, but through Isaac. And in the same way, the promise continued through Jacob's line rather than his brother Esau. 
Paul's point is that God is making choices here. He's choosing one son over another. And he does this between Isaac and Ishmael, as well as Jacob and Esau. In other words, God is not bound to our standards of fairness and justice. God is not bound to our standards of fairness and justice. Take Jacob and Esau, for example. Before either of them is born, Rebekah, their mother, is told that the older will serve the younger. The older, which is Esau, will serve the younger, which is Jacob. God foreknew and chose Jacob over the natural choice of Esau. We'd expect the firstborn, Esau, right, to carry the promise, to receive the inheritance and all the blessing. That would be fair according to the standards of the day. If you read through that story, there's so much unfairness going on for Esau. In the ancient world, the firstborn was preferred over all the others. So by choosing Jacob over Esau, God was saying that his choice or his election, as Paul uses this word, would be entirely up to him and not bound to any human ideals of fairness. Now, here's why that is a good thing. This choice was made prior to their birth. In other words, there is nothing Esau could have done to earn God's choice. In fact, God chose Jacob, whom I like to call the weasel. Jacob is a weasel. Why? Well, he weaseled his way and cheats his brother out of his birthright and his blessing. So what I'm saying here is that Jacob doesn't deserve to be the chosen one of God. And that is precisely the point. This is why Paul anticipates our question, our, the question that we would ask in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? No, is Paul's answer. Well, how can it be, we ask? Paul answers us that God can have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy. What kind of answer is this? Well, it might not be a satisfactory answer to us. But as unsatisfactory as it is, it is the right answer. Now, why do I say that? Well, we need to remember the first few chapters of Romans. Paul made the point that Jew and Gentile are both under God's judgment. Back there, back there he cites Psalm 14 to prove his point. Psalm 14 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. This means that the Israelites are no more capable of keeping God's law and living up to God's righteous standard any more than Gentiles are, even when they are given the very oracles that tell them how to do it. The fact that God shows mercy to anyone is astounding. And that's God's point. For us to suppose that God is unfair in choosing to have compassion on anyone is completely misplaced. 
And this is why Paul uses the old imagery from Isaiah of the potter and the clay. That day that my contract was not extended to keep making Jimmy Neutron was the day that I realized that the real world is unfair according to my standard of judgment. But when we get into that way of thinking, we confuse God's grace with injustice. What I mean is that we only see the gifts God gives us out of grace and not the justice that he is withholding from us. If I want to talk about what I deserve, what's rightfully mine, that's when I come head to head. That's when I come head to head with God's wrath and his judgment. That's the whole point of chapters one and two. But if I keep in mind my own unfaithfulness to God, I will be humbled by God's gracious gifts, especially the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we don't seek justice in the world we're commanded to. On the contrary, we do so as those who have been much forgiven. And this changes the way that we seek justice. In fact, it moves us to show mercy. So what does all of this have to do with Paul's agony for his fellow Israelites? Well, clearly there are some who have accepted the Messiah Jesus. They exist within the Roman church to whom Paul is writing. So in this sense, God has not revoked his promises, for there are Israelites who are receiving God's free gift of grace through the gift of mercy. But he says there has always been a remnant within Israel. We see this throughout the Old Testament. This is not a new concept that Paul is conveniently importing into the text here. Not everyone who came through the Red Sea made it to the promised land. Remember in Exodus? He'll bring this point up later, I think in chapter 11. Not everyone in Israel during Elijah's day bowed the knee to Baal, despite what Elijah thought. God has always reserved for himself a faithful few. This is precisely why it should, should not surprise us when people depart from the church or from the faith altogether. Like Paul, we know that it will happen. And when it does, we too are in great sorrow and anguish, aren't we? But friends, this is no indictment upon the Lord. As sad as it is, and we must grieve this as Paul grieves it, we are not to see God as unfair or unjust. The gospel does not suffer one bit from the unfaithfulness of those who forsake the Lord. We cannot understand all of God's ways. As Paul will say in chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable! are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. God has not forsaken the Israelites. There are Jewish believers in the Roman church of Paul's day to whom he's writing. Paul himself was an Israelite. God's choice, his election, is not achieved by you or me. As if we could do the right things or say the right prayers. No, it's a total gift of free grace. 
Of course, we just barely scratched the surface of Romans chapter 9. There are a few points that I want to repeat. The first one is this. We must let our understanding of God inform our experience rather than the other way around. We must let our understanding of God who in, to inform our experience rather than the other way around. We learn about God from his revelation in his word and especially in Jesus Christ. That's how we interpret our experience, not the other way around. Second, God is our standard of justice and fairness. He is our standard of justice and fairness. We think of justice as fairness and equality among all people. The ancient world understood it a little bit differently. To them, justice was giving what was due. An inheritance was given to the firstborn over all others. When we sense injustice in God, we must remember that he is the potter and we are the clay. So he is our standard of justice and fairness. Third, all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, are under God's wrath and judgment. This is Paul's point again in chapters 1 and 2 and going into chapter 3. For any of us to be chosen is a free gift of grace, not an opportunity to boast. Nor is it an occasion to despair. Though Paul agonized over his fellow Israelites, he continued to pray uh, to proclaim the gospel, as did all of the other apostles. So we are all under the judgment of God. And finally, God has always reserved a remnant. I'm getting a little ahead of Paul here, but the purpose of Israel was always to bless what? The nations. That was his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We in the church, including faithful Israelites who have received Jesus as the Messiah, are a remnant. But here's the thing. We do not exist for our own sakes. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We have a commission to make disciples of what? All nations. And nowhere did Jesus tell his apostles to just look for the remnant and preach to them. God's sovereign election is a mystery known only to him, and we dare not presume to understand it better than we do. I want to close with a brief personal testimony here. I, I, uh, the reason that Romans chapter 9 and 10 are so difficult is because it's hard to avoid the word Calvinism. Now, many of you asked me about Calvinism in the Anglican church, and I didn't want to bring this up because I thought, why bring this up? But I met somebody this week and was telling them about Mission St. James, and you know what he asked me? Are you a Calvinist? So I thought I might bring this up. <laughs> My answer to that question is always the same. I actually can't tell you the five points of Calvinism. I've heard them. I've read them. I've read about them. I just never remember them because they're not the lens through which I read the Bible or understand the gospel completely. And I'm not sure that they're the lens that Calvin did either. 
We can fight afterwards in the parking lot about that. (laughs) What I do believe is that God did know me. He did. What, What I do believe is that God did not know me, predestine me, call me, and justify me because I'm such a special guy. There was a time where I believed that. The grace I have received from him is completely unmerited, unwarranted, and unearned. So is God unfair or unjust? No, God is gracious. And I will spend all my days praising him for such extravagant love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your extravagant love. I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that that your spirit would so move in our midst and in our hearts, Lord, that we would come to your word afresh, come to it anew, that your spirit would show us in your word the extravagance of your grace and of your love. And that we would be so overjoyed, Lord, that that joy would overflow out of our hearts into the lives of those around us. And we wouldn't get caught up in um, specific theological debates, however valuable those can be. But we want to be people known by love. So help us, Lord, to know and understand you through your word and your son, Jesus Christ, that we might understand the experiences that we have in this life and make sense as we walk through this life. But we do pray that you would use us to usher in more into your kingdom. We leave the mysteries to you. Help us to be faithful with what you have revealed. We pray this in the name of your precious son. Amen.